Welcome back to Yes X or No Audio. So it's 2023, April the 12th. And over the last week, we've had these US intelligence leaks hit the mainstream media and have been discussed extensively in the alternative media too. I think they need a name. How about Spring Offensive Gate? So a little background. Uh, so good work done, funnily enough, by Bellingcat, acknowledged by uh, Eve Smith from Naked Capitalism, uh, who provided a really good background to these. So essentially back in January of this year, uh, these classified images of these classified uh, documents began appearing on a gamer's Discord server. Uh, and that didn't garner any attention. The distribution was not effective. So they were then republished on a gaming server with like Minecraft players, much wider community. And then finally, um, the mainstream media begins to notice them and nothing really happens. And then finally they come out. So it's all a bit mysterious, really. But anyway, the, uh, the material is essentially a snapshot in time of what things looked like from the US intelligence perspective of the military situation in Ukraine for the current conflict. And because the current conflict has largely been a big discussion around the upcoming spring offensive, I think this should be called Spring Offensive Gate. So the question is, what the hell is this? Uh, and having listened to uh, numerous ex-CIA uh, analysts like Ray McGovern and Larry Johnson and Philip Giraldi uh, and others about this, it appears that this was a compendium. So essentially what ha what's happening is that uh, someone has gathered together a whole collection of reports, like, you know, 100 pages or 100 reports, anyway, a large number of intelligence reports and merged them into, into a, like a daily digest, a compendium. Uh, which was then to be distributed to people who are meant to be in the know, as it were. And uh, the rules for this sort of thing are that the combined product receives the classification of the highest element within it, and that was uh, top secret. And top secret implies, so we saw one page has like secret slash no fawn. So, okay, the classification is secret, but it's not to be given to any foreigners. That's what the no fawn means. Top secret is the next level, is another higher level of classification, and it implies no fawn. And so this uh, informs us that whoever obtained this information, the source, if you like, um, had to have been a US citizen, or they couldn't have been able to get their fingers on it. Uh, and that, but that doesn't tell us anything about the person or persons who distributed it. So that's the so that's what we're looking at. And the vast majority of uh, the documents that I've seen being discussed are about the military situation in Ukraine. And this implies that the source agencies are uh, the CIA with their liaison counterparts in the Ukraine and then uh, the US's military intelligence uh, as well and, you know, possibly, you know, their assessments from their, what do they call it these days, ISR, uh, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, right? So satellites and whatever else. So this is the, these are the bases, you know, the, the, the sources which then come together to, within this compendium. Next, let's speak of veracity and accuracy. So these ex-CIA analysts are all in agreement that this is a, an actual rigid uh, intelligence product. Uh, 
So there's no question that this is not some fabrication. And if it's real, it doesn't really matter who distributed it, as long as it hasn't been modified along the way. And there seems to be no evidence of that either. So what we are getting through these images is the imagery of an actual US Defense Intelligence Agency or whatever, whoever did it, product. Now, how reliable the information in it varies. Some of it uh, is well supported by evidence on the ground, and an example of that would be the situation of the current air defense uh, capabilities in Ukraine. They don't have enough of these systems, and they're running out of ammunition for them. This is uh, verified by the fact that Russia has been using its air force much more recently than it has for the entire previous part of the campaign. So that implies that, you know, there aren't enough systems or the systems they have don't enough have, have enough ammunition. There are other elements which seem a little less reliable. So you've got statements in there, which was one of the things that Alex Christoforo picked up on. That there's a statement that, that you know, 97% of some Russian collection of military is involved in the conflict in Ukraine. I mean, it's obviously not 97% of the whole of Russia's military, right? Because they've got, you know, I don't know, what's it? There's probably half a million um, Russian uh, military personnel involved at the moment. They've got well over, you know, a million under arms. So, you know, certainly not 97%. So this is a bit of a weird number. We don't even know exactly what it means, but it's certainly not terribly accurate. You know, it's not really well qualified. The reason that the 97% was interesting to Alex Christoforou is because he remembers the number being used by Ben Wallace, the Defence Minister for the United Kingdom. And he always thought that was a weird number. And so he, when he heard it, he saw it again uh, in these uh, documents. He's realised, ah, so that's where Ben Wallace got the number from, this particular intelligence product. The other one is if we look at the... Um, uh, the kill ratio figures of you know sixteen and a half thousand Russians to seventy one thousand um, uh, Ukrainians. Now that may be accurate for the conflict happening in Bakhmut, but in other areas the kill ratios are far in excess of that. It's you know instead of because that's about one to four and a half or thereabouts, but we're seeing one to seven, one to seven, one to eight. You know it varies depending on the engagement. So the the figures that are being quoted in these cases are likely to have been derived from uh, Ukrainian uh, intelligence, and they, of course, uh, are motivated to understate the figures. So, as so, what we're saying is some of the information that's contained in this this uh, uh, product, authoritative product, is good, and some of it is not so good. Another relevant question would be, would this information, now that it's in the public, um, be of assistance to the Russian military? And the answer is no. They already know all this stuff, right? The only useful information for them is where they can identify that the information is inaccurate and then try and understand how that inaccuracy came about or potentially use that. If they learn how that in inaccuracy has been derived, they may be able to exploit that. But I think this is the only really valuable thing for them. And the other thing to remember is that the, this data is now essentially six weeks old. So it's not terribly useful. Things change rapidly on a battlefield. I mean, the, the lines haven't moved an awful lot, but there are significant developments happening. I think the Russians are attacking about four different places at the moment. Significant 
um, attacks across the, the front line. We've got um, obviously Artyomov slash Bakhmud, and we've got uh, Adivka, and there's a couple up in, uh, um, in Lugansk Oblast. Anyway, so things are moving a little here and there, and this is old data. So what the hell is all the hoo-ha about? I mean, we've just had the uh, American mainstream media say, all right, we'll stop talking about this. We'll stop publishing this. It's like, okay, because obviously the US is a bit embarrassed. And so that, I think, is the interesting topic. I mean, to to confirm that this stuff is real, they're running an investigation to find out who the hell did this. And, you know, so the data's real. But the information's old. And so therefore what it says is not terribly important, actually. It, it confirms some things that the open source intelligence community have already understood. Um, and they've also, they're also able to pick some holes in it. You know, that's fine. Um, but the real issue is why was this done? And when did the media begin to speak about it? So it's the, quest, the interesting questions, I believe, are about motivations and timing. As for motivation, I'm in agreement with Larry Johnson and Ray McGovern. And Larry Johnson believes that what we're looking at here is a principled whistleblower. And their concern is that if you, the Ukraine, um, the armed forces of Ukraine, the AFU, if they make a, a big spring offensive in their current condition, they will suffer very heavy losses in uh, men and material. And they, that, they will be left in such a situation that there is no way for them to recover from it, which, which essentially is a disaster. So this whistleblower is trying to prevent the spring offensive, for it shall be disastrous. The reason it will be disastrous is, firstly, Russia... It, is already out artillerying the uh, Ukrainians by six to one every day, just number of shells fired. The other issue is that at the moment, the AFU have insufficient either uh, armoured personnel carriers and certainly um, uh, heavy armour, you know, main battle tanks. Obviously, they have no air force (laughs) of any volume or use and we've also learned from the uh, leaks that their training for new recruits is essentially five weeks and we've heard from their own commanders that the new troops are turning up and they don't even know how to dig a bloody trench so the AFU are just completely not ready for any form of successful or even useful uh, spring offensive. So this is my... Con- I'm ag- agreeing with um, Ray and um, Larry on this. I reckon that this leak is motivated to forestall this spring offensive. And it shines a light too. If we look at the lack of anti-air force defence, so air defence, right, which they're short on systems... Uh, and and about to run out of munitions for them. If we go back to the the Ukrainian attack on the Kerch Strait Bridge, right, which was on the it was early October uh, last year, the Russian response to that was to attack their energy infrastructure, right? So the the 
uh, transformers and whatever else, right? Just to wreck their um, uh, their electrical infrastructure. And that the, the reason that that's useful for Russia to do is because Ukraine needs to transport the equipment that it's um, that is being delivered or that is going to go and be repaired and then return to the front lines across many hundreds of kilometres of rail lines. And the vast majority of Ukrainian rail lines are electrically powered. So that destroying the electrical infrastructure that's used by the railway systems essentially grinds their logistics to a halt. So it's a, it's a very effective strategy. And when they were doing this, and they're using missiles to do it, there, was, there were these claims by the Brits, and I, I remember this clearly, they were, they, were, they were saying, oh, look, they're using these old missiles and, and, and they're, they're full of um, you know, dead weight, you know, like sandbags or whatever. Right? And the claim at the time, of course, by the Brits was, oh, they're running out of missiles. I mean, this whole thing about Russia's running out of whatever has been going on forever. They haven't run out of anything. I've got plenty of what they need. But we now understand what that was about. At the time, I was thinking that it was, the reason they were using these decoy missiles uh, was to uh, improve the probability of the active missiles having the impact that they were meant to. Now I think it was that, but and also it increases the use of the um, uh, air defence system missiles to shoot them down, so that they're draining the the stockpiles of the missiles used, particularly by the S three hundred systems. Um, so, and that remember, so we've got there, we've got October, November, December, January. Right, there's four months of this going on, and they're doing it several times a week it's a constant thing destroying the energy infrastructure and other things too but what is happening is they're draining the um the stockpiles of the air defense uh systems so next we come to the timing so this data is from the end of february slash the beginning right at the beginning of March and therefore it has that's this is the sort of second round of, of leaks this has to have been published after the beginning of March and we expect not too long thereafter which essentially means it's been sitting there waiting for someone to notice it for about a month and we don't know when the uh, New York Times or Washington whoever picks it up first we don't know when they first saw it so we've then got, and they have to have some time to verify it in some way. Um, so we just, let's give them a week. So maybe they had it for two weeks. So there's a period, there's, there's a couple of weeks for discovery and then a couple of weeks to work on the story for publication. So why was the second round of uh, distribution done uh, at this uh, and obviously new data, right? Because the stuff that was published in January couldn't have included the March information, right? So it had to be different things. And I don't know what was in that first round of attempted distributions in January and February on the, the initial um, gaming Discord server. But the second distribution attempt uh, with the larger distribution on the other gaming Discord server contained this data. So... What are they trying to do? This is, I believe, the attempt to to uh, forestall the spring offensive because that's going to happen. I theoretically, 
you know, now or in, you know, middle of April to, you know, the early part of May when the muddy ground dries out. The earlier stuff in the, in January may well have been attempting to forestall some sort of, um, winter offensive, but the ground never really froze properly in Ukraine this winter. So in the end, it didn't matter that that wasn't picked up if the motivation was to forestall such a winter offensive. But the spring, I mean, the ground is definitely going to dry out during the summer. And everyone's talking about this, you know, upcoming spring offensive and, or, or, you know, whatever. So I think that's the motivation. And, and, and so here's the story, right? So that's why they're pushing that then. Here's the, you know, start of March data. What, I mean, you can understand why the MSM might delay publication, but they choose to do it in the end anyway. And, I'm, and that implies that there is some faction within the US system that actually wants this to be published. It's sort of been ta- implicitly approved by someone in some way, right? So there is, a, there is a faction within the US government that's sort of permitting this to be published. And then, of course, what they do is they publish it just before the Easter long weekend, Right. So, and you might think on one hand, well, that's just so that nobody will notice. Well, of course they're going to bloody well notice. It gives enough time for the administration to work out what the hell they're going to do about it, and it gives you know the the Times and the Post, you know, get their little you know super stories and whatever. And they, of course, they start out with leads like, oh, it's probably Russian disinformation, and blah, blah, blah. and then all the alternate media look at it and they go, oh, it's probably an information that's a disinfo op from the. CIA and what... Anyway, finally all the dust settles. We go, no, this is rigid edge, straight up. Information contained in the documents is of variable uh, reliability, but the documents are official. So there's, there's the sort of motivation and timing, as far as I can see it. So another sideline is the political fallout. And of course, we learn from the documents that the USA is spying on everyone, including their allies, you know, Tell me something new. We learned about this a decade ago from Edward Snowden. But the South Koreans are really pissed off because their constitution prevents them from providing weaponry to a nation at war. And so their way around this is to, you know, send the, the 155mm artillery shells to Poland, which is technically not at war, but of course then it's going to be delivered to the Ukrainians. So they sort of get caught out by this and they're a bit pissed about that. Also, uh, I think a couple of their um, arms manufacturing companies have signed contracts, I think, with the US uh, for something like, you know, $5 billion. And yes, the US is technically not at war with Ukraine, but it's providing, you know, all of the intelligence data and targeting and armaments and, you know, there are special ops forces on the ground. And I mean, they're at war in all but name. So... Uh, essentially, so the, the South Koreans are in a bit of a bind. We're into legal dark corners, as it were. One of the elements of this saga, which I've very much been enjoying, is that a bunch of independent commentators from uh, related fields have been really able to come together and, and help flesh out the what's happening in Ukraine and also what this whole things about this leak as it were 
So you've got the, the ex-CIA people like McGovern and Johnson and Giraldi who are helping to be able to develop, yep, this is real stuff. We've seen this. You know, I've worked with this stuff for you know decades. I know what a, <laughs> an intelligence briefing looks like. And then you've also had people like um, Scott Ritter and uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, ex-military uh, and intelligence, military intelligence people, providing actually useful analysis about what's actually happening on the ground. And then you've got independent commentators like uh, Dima from Military Summary looking at the maps, the Russian map and the, and the uh, Ukrainian live UA map and comparing them with, you know, the information that's coming out of the Russian military and then comparing that with the lies coming out of the Ukrainian military. So you have an idea what's happening at a quite a fine granular level um, on the battlefield. It doesn't mean that it's all correct all the time, no. But but you get a, you know you you get an idea. You can follow what's actually happening if you have the time and you're interested. So when you put all of this together, you get quite an interesting package of commentary that is coming out of the independent media space. As I said, you know McGovern and you know, Johnson and whatever you know the, the whole. And there's another one that, who I think's been really cool. Um, his name's Brian Beledic. Um, lives in Thailand uh, and is running a YouTube channel uh, called The New Atlas. And he's an ex-tank officer. I mean, I don't think he was that high up in the chat, but he was a trained, you know, tank soldier. And so one of the areas he's been looking at is what's happening with all the tank stuff. And one of his most salient points that he keeps making, and that because it's a very good point, is that what Ukraine, what's happening is over the course of the, what, it's been 15 months or something like that, was it February? So 14 months-ish that this has been going on. So that you have the first phase where the Russians, you know, sort of charge in and, um, you know, force the um, Ukrainian government to the negotiating table. And that's all going rather nicely uh, until Boris Johnson turns up and says, none of that, otherwise we won't give you any, you know, don't bloody negotiate. We want this war. So that, that changes things. So then the Russians sort of reconfigure to sort of, you know, uh, what is going to turn into a battle of attrition, a war of attrition. Okay, so that's how it is. And then the, the um, you know, they screw up a bit, don't defend the North terribly well. And so they get, you know, this, the Ukraine, Ukrainians have great um, success in, uh, in the North um, to the sort of borders of Lugansk. Um, they're still holding the line on, on the, you know, eight-year-built defensive lines uh, in Donetsk and shelling the crap out of, out of Donetsk City. And they run their attack against Kherson City in, on the right bank uh, of the Dnieper uh, to approach Kherson. And they lose an awful lot of soldiers and equipment in both of, of these attacks. And the Russians pull out of Kherson City and, you know, it's given up and and so therefore the Ukraine, Ukrainian army takes that. So, and this is sort of like the phase two last summer, essentially. And then we really settle down into the war of attrition and what's been happening ever since, apart from, you know, strange things like the attack on the Kersh Bridge and so forth, is that Russia has the military industrial capacity to maintain this level of conflict. It's a thousand kilometer long front line and they can do it. We'll get back to Brian Belletic in a moment because it's an important point. But what's happened during the first two phases here is that 
Ukraine's military hardware has essentially been destroyed by the Russians. And to replace that hardware, throughout Europe, they've been gathering all of the old Soviet hardware that they had and giving that to Ukraine, which is, of course, the right thing to do because they're already trained on this hardware. So that makes sense. Of course, the NATO um, military suppliers, largely US, are all very happy about this because that means that these stockpiles have been, you know, used and therefore they, you know, need to be replaced with something else. And of course, that will be new hardware and so they'll make lots of lovely money out of it. However, as we move into the third phase and again, the Ukrainians have got no bloody hardware, they get delivered newer hardware, which is the older stocks of the NATO hardware. So again, the arms manufacturers are rubbing, manufacturers are rubbing, rubbing their hands together. But what the Ukrainian army is now receiving, and this is the point that Brian Beletic is making, is not just one set of new hardware for a particular role, and he focuses on the main battle tank role. No, they are getting four different sorts. Leopard 1s, Leopard 2s, Challenger 2s, and then the French Leclercs, which aren't main battle tanks, they're light tanks, wheeled vehicles. So there's three essentially different sorts of main battle tanks, and they all have different armaments and aiming systems and characteristics. They require different maintenance, new training, all of the above, and just to make matters worse, they don't use an auto-loading mechanism. You need another crew member who's a loader and also has other roles. So the roles of, of the um, tankers change. Like So the, the, the commander now has different things that he or she needs to do, and the same is true with the radio operator and the driver and the loader, and etc. What this means is that even with these new tanks, there is no way they can be operationally effective in them. I mean, they're going to go into they're going to go into battle theoretically with the spring offensive, right? And they are going to be. I'm sure they're very very brave, but they're going to be under an awful lot of pressure and inside a inside a tank that they've only just learnt about in a sort of a rudimentary manner. It's just asking for trouble. And if you add to that the fact that they don't have effective um, air defense, then they're in even worse trouble. Because as anyone who knows anything about tanks knows, they're not well armored on the, the, the top surfaces. They're designed to withstand tank fire, right? Or, you know, mortar rounds is fine, you know, but, but tank, they're designed to be able to defend themselves against tank shells coming, which are coming at them, at, you know, horizontally or, you know, shallow angles. They're not designed to protect themselves against bombs dropped from above. And that's a, one of the things that will happen to them. Do you know? There's a line of tanks and just drop bombs across the whole damn thing. So Brian feels really, you can hear it in his voice, he feels bad for these poor tankers because they're in equipment they're not familiar with. The, the logistics is going to be a nightmare because it's not one just one lot of shells, it's three different lots of shells. The, yeah, logistics, maintenance, 
resupply, repair, the whole damn thing is going to be a nightmare and then they don't even have proper air cover. So this is just one element of why it is that I believe that this, these leaks are actually designed to stop this stupidity from happening. Because it, all of the Ukrainian forces will, will suffer in some way. I mean, they're doing as well as they can with their artillery systems and, and, and so forth. Uh, <coughs> but they're also running out of ammunition there too. So the whole thing is a nightmare. They, they just can't do this. And that is what I be, that's why I believe that this is the motivation. It's not a stalemate. The Ukrainians are dying at a ratio of a five to one or worse every day. And it's a tragedy. The young generation of Ukraine is dead or has left the country. I mean, I, I, they've lost close to half a million soldiers. I think 400,000 is the last reasonable estimate I've heard. Men, young men have died. And millions of young, middle-aged, whatever, have left the country. Millions, I mean, I think that it's probably under 10 million, but more than six, you know, from a population of whatever it was, 40-something. So they've lost, they've lost around, they're losing, they've lost close to a quarter of their population and a huge section of their young men. It's an absolute tragedy. And so what should be happening is peace talks. Of course, the Russian, the Chinese are, you know, doing their best to in- encourage this. And the, the, the West is just saying, no, no, we're going to keep fighting. And I think that's the significant thing about these leaks. It, there are, there's a faction inside the US government that recognises that this has to end. Any, you know, offensive push now will be an utter disaster from which the AFU can never recover. So I'm really glad to sort of to see that that's happening and I desperately hope that, that peace talks can be begun. And the politicians, all of them, need to make off-ramps because they're all, they've all trapped themselves. I mean, the European Union's suffering economically uh, because of all of this. The US has backed itself into a corner, idiots. And if the... If, Zelensky starts negotiating with the Russians, the, the Nazis in Ukraine, or some of whom are part of the government, probably kill him. So we're in this really horrible position, and the whole damn thing was created by the USA back in the coup in 2014. And then they just happily let the, the, um, the government that they installed run rampant, creating a, a, a civil war through this, you know, anti-terrorist operation as they called it where they basically go and attack the people of the Donbass because they think they're orcs you know they're not humans these Russian speaking Russian ethnic communities living in Gransk and Donetsk and you know some in Zaporozhye and, and Kherson and Kharkiv for that matter so the whole thing is a disaster created by the idiots who run US foreign policy so we're talking Blinken and what's his name? The I can't remember all that. And they're obviously Newlands behind the whole thing. This is wife of Kagan, neocon. But they're just, it's, 
this lack of ability to recognize what can and what can't be done and the consequences of actions. And it all could have been different if all of those economic sanctions had succeeded in imploding the Russian economy. But they didn't. And the Russians were quite surprised about that, actually. They thought it was going to be much worse. But it's not. And the article, which is the, to which this audio is a compendium, finishes with, you know, it's just like the sign at the zoo, don't poke the bear. For when it is that the Russian people feel that they are under threat and they've sort of got their backs to the wall, and that is exactly what this is. This is attacking a direct neighbour and then, well, taking it over and then threatening to put, you know, nuclear missile silos in there and so forth, and then threatening to kill, you know, an ethnic cleansing of the Donbass. When you wake the fucking bear up, they are a formidable force. And if you want to know about it, go and raise Napoleon Bonaparte and Hitler from the dead and ask them. I just, it's insanity. Anyway, let's hope that peace talks are begun yesterday. I hope you found this audio informative. Until next time. Mm-hmm.